0: Father, thank you for this letter that we have been looking at over this last term. Thank you for all that we've seen here about Jesus, about finding life in him and nowhere else. Thank you for the reassurance we have found that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. We pray that we would continue to be reassured today and to put our trust in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of us will have had the experience of, um, at one time or another, visiting or living in a country that isn't our own. And for some, that's your experience right now here in Britain. I wanted to find out how people who are not British experience living in Britain. And I found a list online of things that people find strange. So they include these. I wonder what your list would be. This was the list I found. The size of the country. To many, the UK is ridiculously small. Unless you're from Singapore or Hong Kong or somewhere like that, I guess. The range of regional accents you might encounter. Or about this, having a washing machine in the kitchen. I'm told, is extremely odd around the rest of the world. It's completely normal here. Uh, The obsession with tea. We use tea to welcome people when they're new, to celebrate when they're happy, to commiserate when they're sad, to warm up when it's cold, and to cool down when it's hot. And pretty much any time anything happens, well, a cup of tea is probably what you need. Uh, The strange names of towns. Barton in the Beans. Great snoring, Bishop's Itchington, these are all real places. And finally, the British obsession with banter. If you're not being rude to someone, it means you don't really like them. Now, I'm not sure that's really true, but it nearly is. Now, let me assure you, British people struggle just as much when we go abroad, especially when we go to countries where there is no queuing and things like that. But if you've been with us over the last term, looking at this first letter of the Apostle John, it might have felt at times that we have been stepping into a foreign country, an unfamiliar world, with unfamiliar language and customs. Even if we're quite used to reading the Bible, we might have found this to be a slightly more unusual place to be in ways of saying things that we've sometimes struggled to to understand and to really get what John is saying. But this is a letter to a church where the Christians are feeling wobbly because people have left. And these people who have left are saying there's something deficient about the way the church is doing things. And the Christians left behind are wondering, are we missing something? And John has written to reassure these Christians, you don't need to look elsewhere, you don't need to go elsewhere. And to help the Christians understand this, he's used a series of images. And as we've travelled to this foreign land in, in John's letter, we've, we've become used to the way he speaks, perhaps. It's it's different from other parts of the Bible. He's talked of light and darkness. God is light. Christians are those who walk in the light. Those guys who've left, they're in the dark, but but in the light, if you walk in the light, it's not that you live a perfectly obedient, sinless life. No, no one's going to do that until Jesus returns. But when you walk in the light, actually the light illuminates your sin, and walking in the light in relationship with God therefore means being honest about your sin and confessing your sin and asking God to forgive your sin and being confident that, that, confident that he does because Jesus died for us. So there's been that kind of idea of light and darkness and there's been then the, the theme of love. Again, God is love, John writes. And, and we ought therefore to love God and love one another, but those who left, who departed, they love the world. And they value what the world values, not what God values. And you either love the world or you love your Christian brothers and sisters. But in the end, it can't be both. So he says, be reassured, Christian people. You may sometimes feel spiritually inferior. You may sometimes feel insignificant. But if you have Jesus, you have everything. That is the world of 1 John that we've seen over this term and and we've seen that although the language and the way that this world is expressed is sometimes a bit strange or difficult to, to, to access, actually this is our world too. We still need the same reassurances today that our faith is real faith, that we're trusting the true God, that we know the real Jesus And if we have Jesus as the apostles proclaimed him, we have all that is true. Verse 13, therefore, at the beginning of that reading, is a good summary for the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you may be reassured that you have true life. We had at the beginning of the service, we had the the, the opening verse there, from the end of John's gospel, uh, John's gospel, which he wrote before this, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Can you see the difference here? This is I've written this letter so that you may know that you uh, have eternal life. Not just that you may have eternal life, but that you may know. In other words, that you can be reassured. Am I am I really in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Yes, you are. Be reassured. And as he wraps up the letter, he focuses on the two main themes that we've seen throughout the letter. Truly knowing God, and being confident in our belief and trust in him, and then truly loving one another. And he restates those key things with a particular focus here on prayer. So let's see that. You can see on the back of the yellow sheet, there's these headings as we go through. True life in the sun means, firstly, prayerful confidence before God. Prayerful confidence before God, from verses 13 to 15. So being confident of eternal life with God means having confidence in prayer. Now I wonder what you think of those verses. Let me read them again. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Isn't that extraordinary? Can that really be true? In the first reading we heard from John chapter 17, we were privileged to listen in on Jesus praying. Praying on the nights before he died. And we, we heard him praying with words of extraordinary intimacy. He calls God Father. Father. He speaks of being with him in eternity, before the world began, coming from him, returning to him. Could we pray with the same fervency, the same intimacy, the same confidence in our Heavenly Father? Don't you want that? Wouldn't that be unspeakably wonderful to know God like that? Well, here's the thing. John says, yes, you can have that same intimacy with God, your Heavenly Father. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you struggle to pray? John implies it comes down to two main things. It's not some spiritual technique that you have been missing all this time. It is much simpler than that. It is simply believing and trusting that we have the access to our Father that he says we do. And the other is praying according to his will. If you're a Christian who's trusting in Jesus, when you pray, do you believe that God is listening because Jesus died for you? Do you believe that he loves to hear his children pray? Or do you fear that prayer is as fruitless as trying to get hold of you know, the complaints department for your broadband provider when things go wrong. What happens? Well, first you're on hold for hours. Then you get randomly cut off halfway through your conversation and of course they'll never ring you back so you have to start again. Then they say they're going to deal with the problem and nothing happens and next time you ring there's no record of the conversation that you had. I think we sometimes fear that it might be like that. With prayer. Well, how ridiculous. We've seen even in in just in one John. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is nothing that can stand between us and our Father. No sin, no guilt. He is listening. So next time you're struggling to pray and you're you're maybe wondering what's the point, just consider. If you could know the God who made the universe and made you and despite your sin, sent his son to die for you, if you could know that he is listening right here, right now, would you not go ahead and speak to him? Of course you would. He hears us. But maybe it's not so much the fact that he hears us that's the problem, it's just knowing what to pray. Well, John says, pray according to his will. Well, okay, how do I know what his will is? Well, it's here in the Bible. Actually, he tells us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, his will is for you to be sanctified, to be made like Jesus. That is what he wants. God's will is what he wants. He wants us to be made like Jesus. That's what he wants for you and for me. Pray for that for yourself for one another for your family for those you're concerned about pray to be made more like Jesus when we go through hard times and sad times and we scream out loud in rage and pain pray lord i don't get how this fits in your plan but your will be done please make me more like jesus make those that i'm that i love More like Jesus through this. Thank you that you promise to do that. That is what He promises to do. He doesn't necessarily promise to just solve the situation that we're in according to what we would want to happen. And that is the thing that we can grapple with and find so difficult at times. But actually, it is a comfort to know that His will is to work through all things to make us like Jesus. We can pray for that with confidence. So, get to know his will by soaking yourself in his word. That is what each of us need to keep doing. That's the first thing we see here prayerful confidence before God. And then secondly, he moves on to prayerful love for one another. In the the land of 1 John that we visited, love for God always overflows into love for one another. That's the logic that we would expect at this point, and that is the logic that we find here, but maybe expressed in a way we're not expecting. The thing about loving one another, as we've seen in this letter, is that it isn't hard to love people who are lovable and behaving in a lovely way. That's never an issue. That no one struggles with that, non Christians don't struggle with that, we can all do that. But it's when someone is being unlovable, and particularly if they hurt you, they let you down, they don't keep a promise, their words wound you, that is when it gets a lot more challenging, isn't that right? And we've heard John's encouragement to love one another many times through this letter. If anyone says they love God but they do not love their brother or sister, the love of God is not in them. But now he takes it one step further. If anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, and we'll think in a minute what that sin is, he should pray and God will give him life. What can you do when your brother or sister sins? Whether or not it's against you personally, it's easy for our first reaction to be, well, you you idiot. What do you do that for? How dare you behave like that? Call yourself a Christian. Well, if, if you do, frankly, you deserve what's coming to you. Isn't it easy for that to be our first response? John says, love your brother or sister by praying for them and God." will give them life. Now, we already have eternal life, verse 13, because of Jesus, if we're trusting in him. That is something we can be confident of now, but we will continue to sin, and when we do that, we need to confess our sin and hear afresh the promise of forgiveness and the reassurance that eternal life is still ours because of Jesus. It's not down to us, it's down to him, but we still need that reassurance in the face of Of our ongoing sin. But what then does he mean by the sin that does not lead to death? Pray when you see your brother or sister doing one of those, he says, but not for the sin that does lead to death. Now, there is the Roman Catholic interpretation of these verses, which leads to their doctrine of mortal and venial sins. But the thing is, there is absolutely nothing else in the Bible that supports that kind of distinction between different types of sin. It's it's sometimes thought that the sins that lead to death must be kind of serious things. You know, theft, murder, adultery, things in the Ten Commandments. And if that's true, well, what do we make of the thief on the cross next to Jesus being forgiven? What do we make of the Apostle Paul, who in a court today would surely have been found guilty of being complicit in the murder of Stephen if he'd stood trial. What do we make of King David being forgiven despite his adultery? Well, in the rest of the Bible, the only sin that leads to ultimate death, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of rejecting the forgiveness that God offers us through the death of Jesus. Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's like this, you see. It's like if you're drowning in the middle of the ocean after a terrible shipwreck. And, and all, all hope is lost. But the rescue helicopter comes. And the rescuer comes down on the rope. And he reaches to grab your hands, And then you say, no, I, I don't want to be rescued. I can, I can do this myself and you refuse to take his hand. That is the sin that cannot be forgiven. Do you see? The rescue is being offered to you. It's all there. All you have to do is just receive it, and you will be rescued. It won't be down to you. It will be entirely down to the efforts of the rescue helicopter and the guy coming down on the rope to get you out of there. You just need to say, yes, I want to be rescued, and you can be rescued and forgiven. But if you refuse that, well, How can you be forgiven? Do you see? But in the context of 1 John, we've seen there's a particular version of this sin that those who've left this Christian community have committed. You see, they have rejected Jesus and his death and and by that, they've then rejected their brothers and sisters as a result. And that's most likely to be why John raises this at this point, because he has those guys in mind. Pray for your brother or sister who sins, says John. All wrongdoing is is sin. Of course it is. He says this. If you look for the person who, who is living in the light, trusting in Jesus, sin is still a reality but it does not lead to death. So be confident that God forgives them and will give them life. That is what he promises in the gospel. But you cannot pray with that same confidence for people who have rejected the offer of life itself by moving on from trusting in Jesus. You can't pray with the same confidence, do you see? Now, we might struggle with that. We might think, well, hang on a minute, surely we should pray for everybody. I mean, you know, as sort of the first rule of being a Christian, just pray for everyone, surely. And I want to be able to pray for my loved ones and my family, my friends who don't know Jesus. I want to be able to pray for them. Is this saying, I can't pray for them? Now, this is about who we can pray for with confidence, according to God's will, as he's already said in verse 14. See, we know that the Christian who's trusting in Jesus, but nevertheless sins, we know it is God's will, that the Christian who sins should have life that they don't deserve. They don't deserve it, they've sinned, but they're trusting in Jesus so they can be forgiven. That is God's will, so pray for it, confidently. But with the person who has rejected the offer of forgiveness, or maybe the person who's never even considered it, we can still pray, but not with the confidence we see here. I mean, we, we know we can still pray because of what Jesus, for example, says elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Of course we can pray for them, but it's a different kind of prayer. You see, that's what he's talking about here. I can't be confident that God will definitely save my non-believing friend or family member it's up to him it's his will that matters not mine and in one sense that's what we're doing when we pray in that way we're just saying your will be done father but when i pray for my christian friend who has sinned against me or god or anyone else i can pray with a different kind of confidence knowing eternal life is both mine and theirs do you see but here's the question do we actually pray like this Is this our first instinct when confronted with sin in a brother or sister, a fellow church member who's hurt us, who's just messed up, done something that is um, difficult to deal with? I'm not sure it's always my first instinct. But it's part of loving one another, do you see? In order to do this in the face of sin, it will take humility, it will take honesty with one another. So often we prefer to pretend that it hasn't happened. You know, we fume silently. But the gospel means we can be open and honest with one another in these circumstances. So life in the sun means prayerful confidence before God, prayerful love for one another, and then John finishes, therefore keep yourselves from idols. That's the last thing we see here. And those words are the last verse of the letter. In in, the verses, in between verses 18 to 20, he sums up all he said in the letter. He said in verse 13, I write so that you may know you have eternal life. Here as he finishes are the things we know if we're trusting in Jesus. Do you see, do you see what he says? We know that we are born again. And that means that we do not sin like those who left the church. It's the same argument as chapter 3, verse 4 to 10 when he says that. We know we are protected so we don't need to look anywhere else. We know that we know the true God. We know that we have real life in him. So, keep yourselves from idols. And although that's the first time he's mentioned the word idols in the whole book and it is the last word in the book, actually it sums up What he's been saying. See, the great temptation this church that John is writing to faces is to look up to places other than to Jesus and his death. To look there for life that lasts into eternity. And that is what an idol is. It's a replacement for simply trusting Jesus. In some parts of the world, an idol is still literally a statue. A few months ago, I was invited to a Hindu temple in West London in order to learn about what contemporary Hinduism looks like with some other people from the Church of England and it it involves literally worshipping idols, you go into a room and there are statues all around the edge and people come in and they bow down and they leave gifts of fruit and they give money and while I was there they came and collected the money from the boxes underneath the idols and they literally needed a shopping trolley to carry away the quantity of cash that had been put in these boxes. See, that is literally bowing down and worshipping something that isn't Jesus. And we can not look at that, and that, for many of us, will feel um, kind of different from what we think we ought to be doing. But we've just had Black Friday, which somehow in the UK we seem to like having without any Thanksgiving to... Proceed it. And there is that feeling we get where we think, if I just had that one thing, my life would be sorted. I would be happy. And when we feel like that, you see, that is an idol. And we've seen in 1 John that that is precisely how those who had left the church were operating. They loved the world and they loved what the world loves. They loved stuff. And that love for material things, which earlier in the letter John calls the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Well, actually, that then influenced the whole way that the false teachers were operating. So perhaps in the first century, they would have had the, the Black Friday traders or their equivalents saying, here is the one thing you've been missing. Buy this and you will be happy. And these false teachers were saying the same, spiritually speaking. All this time you have been missing this one thing. So today someone might say, well, you know, you need to speak in tongues, then you'll be a proper Christian. You need to have better music, then you'll be a proper Christian. You need to give this amount of money, then you can know total freedom from sin. All these things are designed to do one thing, like Black Friday adverts. They're designed to make genuine Christians feel inferior, feel that we're missing out. Yes, I'm trusting Jesus, but maybe I'm still missing something. Where else might we we feel that today? Sometimes this can get applied to things like raising our children. You know, if you just follow these techniques, you can guarantee your children will turn out to be Christians. Doesn't that make you immediately feel insecure if you're a parent? Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I've sent them to the wrong school. Maybe I should be doing home education. And that will mean that they'll definitely turn out to be Christians. Or it it might be a particular style of music or something. You know, you need this way of worshipping God in your church gatherings to be truly in with God. Maybe that's what I'm missing, what our church is missing. Do that and we'll have the perfect church. Or maybe there's the temptation to change the message that we're preaching to just be more attractive to outsiders, to not be saying things which are quite so countercultural. You know, the world doesn't want to hear negative things about sin and about how our relationship between us and God is broken. They don't want to hear that. Just be more positive. Make your message about having a better life here and now. That's what the world wants to hear. They want to have sort of life improvement, self help stuff that helps now. Just if the if church preached about that, wouldn't that be much more attractive? Then they'd come flooding in through the doors. Well, maybe they would. But John says, there is only one place. And only one person in whom you can put your confidence. It's Jesus. Stick with him. Everything else is an idol. And so as we finish this journey through this foreign country then, this country that actually is rather like our own, let's stick with Jesus. Let's stick with Jesus as the apostles proclaimed him. Stick with him because real life that lasts forever in relationship with the real God is only found in him. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for the confidence of what we know because of Jesus. Thank you that we can know that we have eternal life if we're trusting simply in him. Thank you that we can be confident of new birth, of your protection, that we can know that we are your children. Thank you that we can know that we truly know the true God. Thank you that we just need to stick with Jesus, who we already have, because he's come into the world. He's been proclaimed to us by the apostles. We can know him now today. May we stick with him in all that we're doing. And if anyone here is yet to trust in Jesus for themselves, may they have the opportunity to do that. So they too can have this life that lasts forever, that is on offer to us when we trust in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.